It is a pleasure to be here this morning with you guys, and uh, exciting to get to be together to open up the Word of God, uh, to get to see you guys in your Sunday best of Sunday bests, and uh, there are just there are so many blessings that we have from God, and it truly is a pleasure to sing about them and to get to be among what I consider to be one of the greatest. So this morning, we're going to be talking about a really, really popular passage to the writers of the New Testament. So popular, in fact, that of the nine New Testament writers, only Jude and James do not quote or allude to this passage. It's like 20 times that it's quoted or alluded to. We're talking about Psalm 110.1. And so, if you will, open up to that passage. Uh, And this morning we're going to be studying this verse and particularly the way that it's used in the New Testament and wondering, like, why does this matter? So Psalm 110.1 uh, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So this is an enthronement verse. So if you, you look at Jesus' life as uh, an incarnation, rejection, death, burial, resurrection, enthronement, this, is the, this fits in the last category. It's a messianic prophecy of sorts uh, about the life of Jesus. And so, as, as I said, this is the most popular verse uh, from the Old Testament. It's quoted in the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. Something about this verse, about this idea, was very popular to them because they felt it was really important. But we don't talk a lot about enthronement. And so that got me wondering and asking this question, what's so important about enthronement? Why is this such a big deal that they spent so much time talking about it and it impacted their theology so much? So we're going to be unpacking this question. And as I said, super popular verse. I can't even really get the tip of the iceberg on all of the ways that this is used in the New Testament. But we're going to be talking about some of the more important ideas. We're going to talk about three of them specifically. But first, let's get a flavor for this verse in its context. We're going to read Psalm 110, make a few comments on it, and then we're going to begin addressing our question of what's so important about enthronement. So Psalm 110 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the, whole, over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So just to hit on some of the high points from this psalm. First, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. If you imagine a throne or a, in a, a co-regency throne, uh, it's like, we think of thrones as like a one-person throne, but think of it like a love seat, where the person who is uh, sitting at your right hand is sitting on the throne with you. So this is an invitation by God to 
my Lord, as, it's, uh, as he's called here, um, to sit and rule with God himself on his throne. Uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is an ancient Near Eastern practice that you would take your enemies and you would put your foot on their head uh, or on their neck. It's, uh, you see it in Joshua. Joshua. And uh, it's, you've conquered them. You have overcome your enemies. And so by this, we see what I think is actually the end result of the rest of this psalm, that the Lord is sitting next to God on his throne, conquering every enemy. And uh, so you get even from that beginning part that if this is an enthronement psalm that had Davidic ideas, like kingly ideas that were present on earth when David wrote it, uh, as one of the commentators I read said, uh, this is a lot like Saul's armor. It outsizes David quite a bit. That even if this does have earthly meaning, there are definitely ramifications to this psalm that far extend beyond anything that David could do. And Jesus will eventually make that point about this verse. But after that, says the Lord sends out from Zion, your mighty scepter rule in the midst of your enemy. So your power will extend from Zion over the whole earth. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. That many people will come and they will join and they will follow you and rule together. Uh, well, rule together with you, but not there yet. Uh, they're going to fight with you and uh, you're going to conquer the world using them. Uh, the womb of the morning, the dew of youth will be yours. No one is quite sure what this means, but uh, perhaps they're fresh. Uh, and, uh, but anyway, you've got recruits on the side of the Lord. They're fighting together. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priests forever after the order of Melchizedek. Is another one of those verses that would be incredibly puzzling to the people reading this at the time of David, at the time it's written. Because if you remember the story of Isaiah, uh, a king of, of Judah who tried to be a priest, he went in and tried to offer sacrifices and he was stricken with leprosy. This, so this is, it's very clear that a king and a priest do not mix. One comes from Judah, one comes from Levi. And so the idea that you could have a priest king is very strange. In fact, it was so strange that some of the Qumran community, the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls, thought that there might be two messiahs because they were like, I don't know what to do with this verse. So very puzzling until, of course, you get Jesus and it all sort of clicks into place. And then we finish up, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of your wrath, execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter the chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This idea that he conquers the entire earth. No one's going to stop him. Uh, he triumphantly drinks, rising up his head, and that's how you know he's ruling. That's how you know that verse 1 is true, that he is sitting at the right hand of the Lord. All his enemies are a footstool. And so what we get from this psalm is that this is a psalm uh, about a battle, about winning, about conquering, about sitting enthroned, ruling the world. And that is ultimately what Jesus is going to do. And so as we come back to our question then, what's so important about enthronement? Why is it significant to me that Jesus is reigning and sitting on the throne next to Jesus, or next to God? Well, I'll give you three reasons, and there are many more, but here are three. 
The first is that Jesus is reigning. If he is sitting on the throne, that means he is in charge. And that is really, really important. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to get here in a minute, but I want you to go with me on a sort of uh, an empathy journey. So put yourself in the mind of uh, a black man or a black woman living in Little Rock in 1958. So this is one year after the, Little, the famous Little Rock Nine. Okay, so nine high school students uh, who were black got to go to a white school, and uh, it did not go over well. So at first, uh, these, these kids, they were going to go to school, and the governor of Arkansas got the National Guard to stop these kids from coming to school because he was worried uh, that they were, there was going to be trouble. And he's like, I don't want this to happen. And then the president of the U.S. had to get more military people to bring these kids to school. And just think how helpless how powerless, how frustrating that would be. And then the next year, 1958, this this county that we live in chose a three-quarter majority to shut down the school rather than to have their kids go to school in an integrated school. That is ridiculous. And if if you can just picture that sort of frustration, that feeling of there's got to be someone who can do something about this because this is not right. And the president, I mean, he's a powerful guy. He can send in the military, but there's still no one can stop the small things. No one can hold every single person accountable for all of the things that they have ever done, these injustices, these gross injustices. And you get this feeling that there's got to be someone who can do something about this. In Ephesians chapter 1, picking up in verse 18, it says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. That we have in Jesus someone who is more powerful, more knowledgeable than anyone who has ever ruled. And he is the one who is going to put things straight. That one day when Jesus comes, things are going to be right, finally. And that feeling of frustration of, at the inadequacy of current government and the feeling of I, there's got to be something better is fulfilled in Jesus who reigns perfectly. But let's go on another empathy journey here. This time we're going to Cuba. The year is 1898. So you are a Cuban and your parents, you know, aging parents, for some reason, the Spanish government, for no particular reason, decided to put them in concentration camps. They weren't doing anything. The Spanish government was just like, we're going to put you here. And then 
you, you know what I mean? You're frustrated. You're like, why is this the case? And you get news. Okay, someone is going to come. They're going to you know, liberate your country. It's going to be good. And the U.S. comes in, and they, they do liberate them. But in the interest of democracy, they decide that the U.S. is going to have an incredible presence and uh, that there's not going to be a whole lot of democracy going on. And also in the interest of free trade, the U.S. is kind of going to take over economically. And so a lot of your people are going to stay incredibly repressed. And so you get this, again, this frustration that, okay, you said you were going to come rescue us, but the problems are still here. The oppression, the fact that I cannot get help, the fact that I can't feed my family, these sorts of, these feelings of one government turns to one government. The problems don't get solved, though, because the governments are all out for themselves. And again, you start to ask, surely there is somebody who cares about the little guys. Surely there is somebody who is going to come and set things right, who's going to help us, who's going to help me, who cares and is not just interested in their own power, but cares about the oppressed. Turn over now to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And having been found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look, Governments, people in power, they go corrupt. If not in the first generation, in the second and third. But guess what? We have a king who, unlike any king that has ever existed, chose to give up all of his power to go be among the poor, to be among the weak, to identify with them, and to take away all his power so he could help, so that he could be perfectly obedient, and die for the sins of his people. And that is why we can trust him, okay? Because unlike any other king, he cares about us so deeply. And he is now been enthroned. He is now reigning. Now every knee bows at his name. And we can trust him because he will rescue us. And in the future, in the day that he comes, there will be salvation. But even now, we understand that he is reigning and that we can pray to him. And when we have struggles and worries, we know he has the power to do something about it. And that he is just one prayer away from us. Little old me, I can pray to the king of this universe and that he is going to help me. And so as we start to really feel the, the weight of this. Like, if we have Jesus reigning, then we can understand that the problems of this life are temporary. We can understand that there is somebody who's going to rule uh, selflessly, who's going to rule with a power to help and to, to set things right, and that that is going to be Jesus. And so we can be very, very thankful for that 
Thankful that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But there's another point to this. And now turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. And here we will find the next stop on our journey. As we talk about how Jesus has put every enemy under his feet. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20, we read, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So if we understand that Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, exhibited power over death, and that in the last day, he will put death in subjection under his feet, then we have nothing to fear from death, and there will be a resurrection. And this is very exciting, because there, there is a hope that comes from that. There is a purpose that comes from knowing that there will be a resurrection. Picture it like this. So you're in some unnamed uh, country full of political turmoil, and uh, you're worried every day about the state of your family. And you're worried that you're going to die. But also another element to this is that you are poor. And there's nothing you can do about it. You can't leave. You don't have enough money to do that. And so every day you're stuck in this situation in which you're constantly dying, constantly worried, but you can't do anything about it. And that's just your life. And that's what life is like if there is no resurrection. Because here we are living in this world full of turmoil, but if there is no resurrection, then like, what's the point? There is, there's nothing to look forward to. But what if you have you know, a rich uncle or someone who gives you the money that you need to leave? He says, look, I'm going to give you a boat ticket, and you're going to get out of here. Now things change. Two things very significant change. One is that now you've got a boat to catch. You've got something to get ready for. And two, you've got a hope. Because now, for the last however long you've lived in this war-torn country, there's been a constant concern daily that today could be your last day. And you just get weary because there is no hope. But then, now there is a boat ticket. Now there is something to look forward to. Now there is an escape. And if you know that, then you have that to look forward to. And all of these little things that can wear you down, now there's something that you have that you're waiting on, and that gives you strength. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is going to say these sorts of things about the resurrection and about a hope that we have waiting for us in heaven. In Colossians 3, picking up in verse 1, it says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, Seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul says you're spending a lot of time 
thinking about earthly things. But if you spent more time thinking about heavenly things, if you spent more time thinking about that boat that you got to be ready for, well then, in verse 5, you would put to death what is earthly in you. And in verse 12, you would put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, gentleness. Like, there are things that you got to do to get ready. And when you are paying attention not to the things that are going on on earth, not to the things that are going to wear you down here, but on what you've got to get ready for, then you're going to have to make some transformations in your life to be ready when the time comes or else, like the foolish virgins, you're going to be caught with the gates closed and you're going to miss your chance. And so if there is a resurrection, if Jesus is reigning and if he has put death under his foot, then we've got things that we got to get ready for if we want to go to heaven with him. But also in Hebrews chapter 12, we have a hope, a hope that allows us to endure. In Hebrews chapter 12, also starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. The author of Hebrews here says that Jesus, as he was dying on the cross, he looked forward to the joy that was set before him. He understood that although there is trouble here, although the pain that he had to endure was great, that there was something that he was looking forward to, and that gave him strength to endure. And in the same token, like life is going to be hard, and especially if you're a Jew like the people in Hebrews were, uh, and you're being persecuted by your Jewish counterparts, and you're having the, your property seized. Like, it's, a, it's a troubling time. But he, he says, look, if you just focus on the joy that is to come, if you focus on the resurrection, if you understand that like Jesus, there is joy that comes after this life, then all of these little things seem a whole lot smaller. And you have a lot more strength to endure, to keep on going. And that is the power behind the resurrection. But one more thing to say on the resurrection is that Jesus gives us a hope that if we endure, we will follow him. And that just as he died and then was raised and then went to be enthroned with God, so also will we. And that's kind of crazy, but I want to I show you this. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 3, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also have conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We'll show you 2 Timothy 2 as well. Paul says, Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul says, I endure because the sake of the elect. And I endure because if we endure, we will reign with him. 
One last passage, Matthew 19. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That in the resurrection, this will be part of the reward. Now, I have to say, I don't know what that means. Like, all the specifics of what it means to reign with Jesus are are beyond me. But I know that it's part of the reward. And I know that we're going to follow Jesus on this journey of death, burial, resurrection, and throne. And that is really exciting. And that gives me hope. That gives me the power to endure. And it gives me something to look forward to, a purpose that I got to get ready for. And so if Jesus is enthroned, he is reigning, he is the perfect king, and he is, there will be a resurrection, a hope for us. But finally, there is intercession. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 9. And... Uh, I will make no apologies. I'm going to get excited. Uh, I love Hebrews. I think the author of Hebrews is just, the the way he logics through things is brilliant. And here, the author of Hebrews is going to make a point. He's going to say that because Jesus is enthroned, sitting next to God, that makes him the perfect high priest. Because here's what the high priest does. The high priest, the most important thing the high priest does is on the Day of Atonement, One time every year, he brings the blood into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, to offer sacrifices for the people. But Jesus does something better than that. Pick up in verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 9. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So he says that when Jesus went into the holy place, when he went into the presence of God. He wasn't bringing the blood of bulls and goats. He was bringing his own blood, a perfect sacrifice. But it gets even better. Turn now to verse 23. It says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, Not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes a judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So check this out. The high priest's job is to go into the, the presence of God to offer an atonement for sins, to offer the blood. But the high priest, he, he can only go into the Holy of Holies, which, I mean, the presence of God is there in the Shekinah glory, the cloud. I mean, it's there. But we also understand that there's something very imperfect about that, that God doesn't live in a tent. God lives in heaven. 
And so Jesus, he didn't go into a tent. No, he went into the literal, actual presence of God in heaven. And he didn't go into the Holy of Holies and just put the blood there and then leave. No, Jesus went into the presence of God, to the throne of God, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And that is the high priest we have atoning for us, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And this Jesus, this king, this one who is enthroned and reigning, he is the one who is making intercession for us. Paul says it, in Romans chapter 8, but after Peter, in Acts 5, says, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and a savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Look, because Jesus is enthroned, because he is sitting at the right hand of God, we have a perfect high priest who is able to make intercession for us like no priest has ever been able to do and nor will they ever be able to again because Jesus is the perfect high priest because of his proximity to God right there on the throne. So we come back to our question, what's so important about enthronement? Well, I hope you can see everything is important about enthronement. Because Jesus is enthroned, he is reigning. And we have a king, a ruler who cares about the little people, who cares about the oppressed, who is going to really set things right, who's going to hold the people accountable, who have never been held accountable before. And we have a king who has put death in subjection to him. And so there will be a resurrection. And because of that, we have a hope. Because of that, we have endurance. Because of that, we have a purpose, something to get to move forward towards something to get ready for. And finally, because Jesus is enthroned, we have a perfect intercessor, someone who can make atonement for our sins, someone who can speak to God on our behalf. And that is truly incredible. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Our God, we thank you for your incredible plan that brought Jesus out of heaven to earth to die for our sins and back to heaven to rule at your right hand. We thank you that he is ruling and caring for us. We thank you that he is ruling and will one day set things right. We thank you that he is ruling and even now that we can pray to you and that he will answer our prayers. We thank you for the hope that comes from the resurrection, and we long to be with you one day. We thank you for the purpose that comes from the resurrection, that we have something to get ready for, and we thank you for the endurance that comes, that all the small things of this life pale in comparison to the hope of glory with you. And we thank you for the fact that our sins have been washed away. We thank you for the fact that Jesus is interceding for us and that we know that he will always be there to make intercession for us. Thank you for giving us so good of a God to serve and being so good to us. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.